Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we will be discussing the history of USS PC-1264, a submarine chaser in World War II that featured a primarily African-American crew. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, racism, discrimination, wartime violence, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. It's the final week of February. That means it's time to cover USS PC-1264. I'm so excited. This is the first submarine chaser I've ever covered. Without any further ado, let's get into it. USS PC-1264's hull was first laid on October 7, 1943 at the Consolidated Shipbuilding Company in Morris Heights, New York, which is currently a residential neighborhood located in the West Bronx. She'd be launched on November 28, 1943, being completed as a United States Navy PC-461-class submarine chaser. A submarine chaser or sub-chaser is a small naval vessel that is specifically intended for anti-submarine warfare. The PC-461 class of submarine chasers was built to intercept and destroy German U-boats stationed off of the coast of the United States. These submarine chasers were ideal since not only were they faster to build than destroyers and destroyer escorts like USS Mason, but they were cheaper and required few people to man them. It also checked the need for coastal convoy protection off the list. As for PC-1264, she was 173 feet and 8 inches long, had a beam of 23 feet and a draft of 10 feet and 10 inches tall. She displaced 450 short tons and had a complement of 65 officers and enlisted men. As for her propulsion, she was equipped with two 1,280 brake horsepower Hooven Owens Rensselaer RB99DA diesel engines capable of producing 2,560 brake horsepower total. Brake horsepower refers to the horsepower of a vehicle after accounting for the frictional losses in power from the engine. For this reason, a vehicle's brake horsepower is always less than the original horsepower. With these engines, the ship could travel at an average of 19 knots. As for her armament, she was equipped with one 3-inch 50 caliber gun, one 1.5-inch gun, five 3-4-inch guns, two rocket launchers, two depth charge projectors, and two depth charge tracks. PC-1264 would be commissioned on April 25, 1944. We do have to give a bit of background information really quickly before we get into her career, and it's restating a little bit from USS Mason. On December 9, 1941, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People sent a telegram to the U.S. Secretary of the Navy at that time, Colonel Frank Knox, requesting that blacks be allowed into the Navy other than as messmen, which are essentially the cooks. However, President Franklin D. Roosevelt received a letter from the NAACP on December 17, 1941, and this resulted in the president turning the matter over to the chairman of the Fair Employment Practices Committee, Mr. Mark Etheridge. As well as the letter from the NAACP, they received a letter of complaint from the Navy Department, of course. President Roosevelt then sent a note to Secretary Frank Knox that stated, quote, 
I think that with all the Navy activities, BUNAV, which stands for the U.S. Navy's Bureau of Navigation, might find something that colored enlistees could do in addition to the rating of messman. I don't say this often, but man, Roosevelt roasted that man. Let's not get too excited and applaud this basic measure of inclusivity just yet, however. FDR wasn't perfect, as no one is, and he still upheld some of the prejudices of that era. The group that was forced to make Navy policy, the Navy's general board, made a suggestion to FDR based upon a fear that they had, stating that they either be enlisted as messmen or, quote, if this proved not feasible for general service. So they were still pushing for blacks to remain in the kitchen instead of on the front lines. The problem the Navy was so concerned about was the archaic thinking that integrated units would disrupt discipline on the Navy's fleet of ships. Even though during the American Civil War, there had been integrated crews that worked perfectly fine together and respected one another. To this, FDR agreed, stating that, quote, to go the whole way in one fell swoop would seriously impair the general average efficiency of the Navy. However, he did think that something could be done and should be done. So, on March 27, 1942, the General Board responded to the President that the Board, quote, fully recognizes and appreciates the social and economic problems involved and has striven to reconcile these requirements with what it feels must be paramount at any consideration, namely the maintenance at the highest level of the fighting efficiency of the Navy. And to that they added, quote, if so ordered, black units could be used, quote, with least disadvantage in construction units, local defense vessels, shore establishments, and on selected Coast Guard cutters. It wasn't much, but it was a start in the right direction. And President Roosevelt would order the Navy to do so on April 7th, and the Navy made an announcement that blacks could enlist for the general service starting on June 1st of 1942. And this is the action that paved the way for the crews of USS Mason and USS PC-1264 to enlist and serve. Let's get into the crew of USS PC-1264, since we fortunately do have some information about them. The commanding officer for USS PC-1264 was a white man named Lieutenant Eric S. Purden, and he'd command her from her commissioning up until September 17, 1945. After this, his engineering officer, Lieutenant Ernest V. Hardman, would command her until October 31, 1945, and after this, Lieutenant Jack W. Sutherland was her commander until she was decommissioned on February 7, 1946. The first African-American to serve as an officer in the United States Navy was Ensign Samuel L. Gravely, Jr. He reported to USS PC-1264 on May 2, 1945, and by her decommissioning in 1946, he was serving as the executive officer for the submarine chaser. This ship was his first sailing assignment, and he'd later become Admiral Gravely, being the first African-American to achieve this rank in the United States Navy. Before Gravely was an officer on PC-1264, she had an all-white officer complement along with eight white Navy petty officers, one in each of the specialties required aboard PC-1264. It was their job to ensure the African-American crew was trained properly until Lieutenant Purden considered some of the men skilled enough in their specialties to rank up to petty officer. After an indeterminate amount of months, finally, eight African-American men were ranked up to petty officer, and their white counterparts were transferred to different assignments. 
At one point, USS PC-1264 would be the only ship in the United States Navy during World War II with an entirely African-American crew, since USS Mason always had white petty officers. This was an amazing feat. USS PC-1264's career wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, however. She ran into a number of issues during her training, the first of which occurred on April 30, 1944, after four days of intensive drills. USS PC-1264 and crew traveled up the Hudson River to Iona Island in the town of Stony Point, New York. There, they were to load ammunition for the guns for the first time. They loaded it with no issues, and afterward, Lieutenant Purden expected to be able to dock PC-1264 there for the night. However, this is very close to residential areas, and with the large amount of ammunition aboard, it wasn't deemed safe to moor at Iona Island. So he called the duty office of West Point, a nearby U.S. military academy just off the Hudson River in New York. He asked if they could moor there and informed them of the ammunition on board. And there was a bit of confusion at first, because it had been a very long time since a Navy ship had moored at West Point. Despite having a mostly African-American crew in a time where segregation was very present in American society, they were welcomed with open arms and there were many excited visitors who walked alongside the dock to check the ship out once she arrived. Not only was there support of onlookers, but the U.S. Army even provided two buses and many of the crew were taken on a tour of West Point with knowledgeable sergeants acting as their tour guides. I'd love to see West Point, so I think that is an awesome opportunity that was afforded to the crew of USS PC-1264. After they'd loaded their ammunition and left West Point, they sailed to Fort Lafayette, an island coastal fortification in the narrows of New York Harbor, to load depth charges. After this, they sailed off to the United States Naval Frontier Base located at Tompkinsville, Staten Island in New York. This would become USS PC-1264's home port after this. At this base, they tended to the escort ships that went along with convoys to various destinations. At Tompkinsville, the crew continued training and calibrating their equipment, the most important of which was the ship's radio direction finder. The direction finder or radio direction finder is defined as a radio location that uses the reception of radio waves to determine the direction in which a radio station or an object is located. Think of echolocation, it's similar to that. The ship went through many tests before she'd hit the high seas for the first time, and this included target practice at Sandy Hook's range and testing the structural integrity of the hull. After this, she'd head down to the Submarine Chaser Training Center in Miami, Florida for more training and her shakedown crews. As soon as she docked in Miami, the shakedown inspectors ran the ship and crew through the ringer for several days. Despite the runaround, the crew was ecstatic to have a glowing report. They left soon after on their first independent cruise, and around 10.35 a.m., USS PC-1264 started to experience engine trouble, being stopped dead in the water far from land and bobbing in the waves. After some time just bobbing around in the Atlantic Ocean, a naval tug arrived and towed the ship back to post a literal after midnight, arriving safely back in Miami. Unfortunately, West Point's hospitality was in the minority and many of the towns and bases where PC-1264 would find herself weren't as kind. Especially in the South, the crew of PC-1264 experienced racial intolerance to varying degrees. An example of this occurred when the men were to take their swimming tests. 
Most U.S. Navy seamen near Miami took their tests at Miami Beach. But because PC-1264's crew was black, the city of Miami Beach refused to allow the use of municipal public beach for the training of these servicemen. That is one example of many, and the next example I share with you made my skin crawl. If you didn't know, I am a white woman. This next example of racial intolerance that the crew of PC-1264 faced does include the N-word. I am not going to say that word, but I will share the story with you because I think it is important to learn from the mistakes of the past so we do not repeat them. Again, while in Miami, Florida, the crew of PC-1264 checked in frequently at the Submarine Chaser Training Center, and each Navy Seaman's ID card was checked by civilian guards at the gates when entering and exiting. The African-American crew of PC-1264 noticed that the guards took a lot longer checking their IDs than that of their white counterparts. They thought that it was weird and intrusive, but didn't say anything about it, especially after one day when it suddenly stopped. The crew was relieved for a short time, hoping that they'd finally been accepted. After some time, the officers finally found out why when a group of fellow seamen were out on the town for a drink at a local bar. There, the white seamen of another anti-submarine patrol boat overheard racist civilians formulating plans to raid the base and shoot up the, quote, N-word ship. These heroic seamen who heard these plans did something I absolutely love. They went back to the submarine chaser training center, armed themselves with rifles and pistols, and marched to the gate to wait for any civilian who dared to threaten the crew of PC-1264. The civilian guards at the gate were very uneasy and asked the seamen what they were doing. At this point, the seamen explained what was going on, and after that, the officers and crew of PC-1264 noticed a significant decrease in racial harassment here. Those men cared enough to do something about the injustice, and I salute them for it. On July 2nd, 1944, the ship finally completed her shakedown cruise and post-inspection. She was then ordered off to the Fleet Sound School in Key West, Florida, to participate in a three-and-a-half days exercise. PC-1264 was ready in the mines of the Submarine Chaser Training Center, with 15 crewmen already receiving their first promotions at that time. They completed their training at the Fleet Sound School, afterward returning to New York and reporting for duty on July 10, 1944. She'd be assigned to a surface escort group based at the Naval Frontier Base in Staten Island, Task Unit 02.9. Over the next few months, PC-1264 escorted convoys from New York to Cuba or Key West and back, or from Charleston, South Carolina up to New York, the entire time guarding against U-boats. During this time, she escorted a French submarine called Argo from New York to Key West to ensure that U.S. air and sea anti-submarine forces didn't confuse the submarine with those of the Germans. She also served the role of an, quote, enemy destroyer for submarines with an anti-escort training, and this also helped further train PC-1264's crew at the same time. Their first convoy task was as part of Convoy NG-448 from New York to Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in Cuba. During this convoy, on July 21, 1944, their sonar picked up a large unidentified object near. They acted accordingly to standard anti-submarine procedures, engaging the contact for three hours before they left to rejoin the convoy, who were safely away from the object. It's unconfirmed what they ran into. After this puzzling encounter, she would regularly escort convoys between New York and Key West. Later that year in September, the engineers were going about their business when they stumbled upon something troubling. 
there was a series of cracks between the bed plates, which are girders supporting the engines that were welded to the hull and the engine mounts. This was a huge problem. If the engines fell through that half-inch thick hull that the bed plates were welded to, it could cause a serious leak. After a thorough examination by base engineering staff, they confirmed it was due to poor welding during the quick construction of the ship. The base engineer also reported that heavy seas could shift the engines off their bed plates and sink the ship, which of course was alarming. Due to the findings, PC-1264 was relieved from duty for the time being and towed to Bayonne, New Jersey, to the Navy Yard Annex. Doing this probably saved the lives of the crew, because the next convoy they were going to take encountered a hurricane and heavy seas, which surely could have shifted the engines and sunk the ship. Many predict that PC-1264 would have been lost had she escorted this convoy. She was repaired and passed sea trials, ensuring she was safe for the seas once more. After this, she returned to her home base in Tompkinsville, ready for action. During the first week of November, the first white petty officers were released from PC-1264 to be assigned to different ships as the newly promoted black petty officers took their rightful places. Early in January of 1945, PC-1264 was sailing with a convoy alongside other escort ships toward Key West. The command vessel of the convoy received a radio transmission from Eastern Sea Frontier headquarters ordering three of the ships back to New York, and PC-1264 was among them. She'd escort one more convoy sometime during the war. From this point, her primary goal was anti-submarine duty. The U.S. Navy increased its active anti-submarine forces in response to statements made by one of the captured German spies from U-1230 back in November of 1944. And this spy claimed that the Germans were preparing to launch V-1 and V-2 rockets by submarines against major U.S. ports. PC-1264 was a part of this massive increase in anti-submarine patrolling. She prowled the waters from Long Island to Cape Charles, which is the entrance to Chesapeake Bay. On January 17, 1945, PC-1264 unloaded all of her ammo and sailed down to the Looters Marine Construction Company in Stamford, Connecticut to have her bottom cleaned out and to get a nice fresh coat of paint on the underwater hull. She arrived there on January 18th and dry docked for three days to have the work done. After this, for the next three months, PC-1264 patrolled a long line running north by east for 20 miles. This took her from buoy Abel, the buoy that was the farthest seaward marking the mine-swept channel into New York, which was 40 miles from the buoy. Despite the monotonous routine and the inclement winter weather, the duty was rather easy, since the crew would spend seven days out on the ocean and five days back in port, repeating this cycle over and over. The following month, on February 28th, PC-1264 and her crew were practicing an anti-submarine run against buoy Abel when it was discovered that this practice run may have flushed out a German U-boat that was hiding from radar detection under the buoy. The ship was nearing the end of her practice run when all of a sudden the sonar operator reported target bearing left rapidly. Lieutenant Purden immediately realized what had most likely happened, with the hairs on the back of his neck surely standing on end. PC-1264 jumped into action and engaged the target with Mark 22 anti-submarine projectiles. This went on for several hours before two crewmen claimed to have at some point seen the conning tower of the submarine bob just above the surface for a moment before it slipped back under the waves. Eventually, the signal disappeared from the radar. The crew would go to their graves believing they'd flushed out U-866, 
Eastern Sea Frontier headquarters believed this was simply a false signal on the radar. Curiously enough, a damaged German submarine sunk two weeks later off Sable Island, just east of Nova Scotia, Canada. To me, that's evidence enough that the crew was telling the truth, but this still isn't confirmed and the submarine's wreckage whereabouts are unknown. She left her home base in Tompkinsville for her last patrol on April 23rd, and two days later on April 25th, she was at sea when she received new orders. PC-1264 was ordered to immediately proceed to Charleston, South Carolina. There, she'd take command of the escort ships for Convoy KN-382. Though she'd participated in escorting convoys many, many times, this was the first time she was ever in command of the escort and a huge feat for the ship and her crew. This showed that the Eastern Sea Frontier headquarters had faith in PC-1264 and knew what her crew was capable of. On April 27th, the ship and her crew, accompanied by USS Suzanneville, also known as PC-1149 and PC-1547, led 30 merchant ships out of Charleston Harbor in order to rendezvous with a smaller convoy heading north from Key West. The two convoys intercepted one another the following morning, with the northbound convoy being escorted by three frigates and three subchasers. USS Natchez, also known as PG-102 or PF-2, was a river-class frigate that was in command of the northbound convoy. PC-1264 reported in to her, turning over command of their convoy to USS Natchez. She'd go along dutifully on the starboard beam of the joining convoys. Due to the arrival of the three submarine chasers from Charleston, two of the smaller subchasers were sent off to take on other tasks, with two frigates departing the convoy the following afternoon. On April 29th, the convoy was sailing along doing their duty when U-548 appeared on their radar and engaged the convoy. USS Natchez jumped into action, with the convoy and the other escorts continuing forward, leaving USS Natchez to fight off U-548. PC-1264 would stay with the convoy as well. Later that night, the convoy encountered another friendly group of ships, Task Group 02.10, which was what was known as the Hunter-Killer Group. This task force passed the convoy on the port side, heading down to help USS Natchez with U-548. Two of the destroyer escorts in this group helped USS Natchez to destroy U-548, and this was one of the final anti-submarine actions of the war in the Atlantic during World War II. On May 9, 1945, one day after the war in Europe officially ended, Convoy NK-686 left New York with 28 cargo ships and tankers, along with five escort ships. PC-1264 was among these five. The commander of the Eastern Sea Frontier wasn't taking any chances even though the war had officially ended on May 8th, worrying that individual German submarines may be lurking the waters and wanting to continue the fight against orders. The convoy steamed down toward Key West, with 15 more ships joining as it passed Chesapeake Bay. Others in the convoy left for Savannah, Georgia, Jacksonville, Florida, or Charleston, South Carolina at this time. On May 15th, Eastern Sea Frontier headquarters had changed their minds, thoroughly assured that the violence was over in the Atlantic, and the merchantmen were dispersed to continue on to their destinations alone. Task Unit 02.9.10, which were the escort ships, were then ordered to Key West for a week's worth of more training before they'd head back up to New York. After the training, PC-1264 was heading back to Tompkinsville with the rest of 02.9.10, and they arrived safely on May 25th. With the war finished in the Atlantic, the crew was now worried they'd be sent off to the Pacific, where the war still raged. 
Surely the crew of PC-1264 anxiously bit their nails and paced the floor as they waited, anchored in the heavily crowded anchorage next to the escort vessels. They watched nervously as many other submarine chasers had their K-guns, which fired 300-pound depth charges, removed as well as their 0.7-inch guns replaced by twin-barreled guns of the same caliber. They were headed down to the Pacific, where more anti-aircraft guns were needed in order to combat the Japanese suicide planes. Finally, after a long silence, PC-1264 received their next assignment. Quote, from Chief of Naval Operations to USS PC-1264. When in all respects ready for sea and when directed by Commander Eastern Sea Frontier, you will proceed to Norfolk, Virginia and report to Commander-in-Chief Atlantic Fleet for training. Upon completion of refresher training, you will proceed via Canal Zone and report to Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet. PC-1264 was heading to the Pacific Theater to face the Japanese. She, too, had her K-guns removed from the afterdeck, and on July 31st, she was ready, and she left for Norfolk. She was inspected by base personnel there, and after this, PC-1264 headed down to Miami and was once again at the Submarine Chaser Training Center on August 5th. PC-1264 was supposed to remain there for 10 days, but an unspecified incident cut this time short. It did get a little messy down in Miami. The crew of PC-1264 was at a club that served African Americans one evening, laughing and having a good time. Unfortunately, a small spat resulted in the club owner phoning the Shore Patrol, which are service members who provide security in the Navy, Coast Guard, and Marine Corps. The three members of Shore Patrol who arrived were white, and they were an enlisted sailor, an Army military policeman, and a Navy chief. The chief stayed with their vehicle while the other two walked into the club to see what all the fuss was about. They spotted a black sailor in an officer's uniform and immediately assumed he was faking. Impersonating an officer in the military is a federal offense. And so the military policeman approached this man, who just so happened to be an officer on board the PC-1264, and signed Sam Gravely. The MP, as we will refer to the military policeman for short, informed Ensign Sam Gravely that the Navy chief wanted to see him. To that, Sam Gravely responded, quote, If the chief wants to see me, tell him to come here. That seems sassy, but it's actually correct in the military. An enlisted man is supposed to approach an officer, not the other way around. The MP was not having this and grabbed Gravely out of his chair, much to the chagrin of everyone around them. Gravely remained calm and yelled, take it easy, to the other men in the club who were flabbergasted at what was going on. This is only a mistake, he'd go on to say, turning to the MP and saying, let's go. Word spread rapidly that Gravely had been arrested from the club, with black sailors rushing in on the MP in anger. To this, the shore patrol chief radioed for backup. Two more vehicles showed up and men spilled out of them, only to find Ensign Gravely being the responsible one and trying to de-escalate the situation. He attempted to soothe angry sailors and explain the mistake made to the shore patrol, but the shore patrol wasn't keen on listening. They threw PC-1264's crew into their trucks, with Gravely getting into the chief's vehicle calmly and voluntarily. With that, they were all on their way to the shore patrol headquarters. While all of this was happening, one of the crewmen from PC-1264 fled to the ship, breathlessly explaining to his captain what had happened. Lieutenant Purden immediately went down to the shore patrol headquarters, and when he walked in, he found the shore patrol officer on duty profusely apologizing for the mistake made to Ensign Gravely, who'd explained the mistake the, the MP had made. The men who'd converged on the shore patrol to defend Gravely were unfortunately charged. The charges were, quote, refusal to obey orders of shore patrol, interference with shore patrol, 
two charges of drunk and disorderly, and finally one charge of just drunk. It was a huge mess. The next morning, Lieutenant Purden was at base headquarters when he was informed to, quote, institute general count martial proceedings against that ensign for conduct unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman by the admiral in command of the naval district. Purden, being that he was the commanding officer of USS PC-1264, refused this directive. He cited a directive from Navy regulations that a commandant of a naval district was not able to order any ship's captain to bring charges against an officer under that ship captain's command. Basically, it was out of their jurisdiction. The base adjutant heard and understood the facts in the case and finally made a decision. He advised, not ordered, Lieutenant Purden to keep his men on PC-1264 and out of the Admiral's and Shore Patrol's reach. Lieutenant Purden followed this advice, and PC-1264 spent four more days in training in Miami with no more incidents, and then they left for Key West. She was apparently destined for the Pacific, however, she'd never make it that far. Key West was as far as PC-1264 ever went. The day after she landed in Key West, President Truman announced the atomic bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. As we know, another atomic bomb would be dropped on Nagasaki three days later on August 9th. This was devastating not only for Japan's war effort, but for the civilians who lived there as well. Those who didn't die in the immediate blast were plagued by radiation, some dying from radiation poisoning and others feeling the effects for years to come. As for PC-1264, her orders to the Pacific were canceled and so she sat in Key West for three weeks, awaiting further instruction. Eventually, plans for demobilization, which is the process of standing down a nation's armed forces from combat-ready status, came down from the Bureau of Naval Personnel. At this point, Lieutenant Purden asked to be released from active duty, and in his stead, he recommended his executive officer, Lieutenant Ernest Hardman, assume command of PC-1264. I, personally, am sad to see Lieutenant Purden leave this story. He's been so accepting, progressive, and just overall awesome with his crew that seeing him leave Key West for Norfolk one last time on September 5th makes me sad. When they arrived in Norfolk on September 10th, he'd turn over command of PC-1264 to Lieutenant Hardman following a change of command ceremony that took place on September 17th. Before this happened, there were crewmen already being released from active duty or transferred to other stations. Upon his release from duty, the crew of PC-1264 gave Lieutenant Purden a sweet gift to remember their time together. A desk lamp with the inscription, quote, USS PC-1264, we will never fail. After Purden's departure, PC-1264 remained in Norfolk for another six weeks, being moved just up the Elizabeth River to Norfolk Naval Shipyard. As for Lieutenant Purden, like many officers, he left the U.S. Navy after World War II, but he remained in the Naval Reserve. He'd go on to work as an intelligence analyst for the Central Intelligence Group up until 1948. In 1948, he was recalled for active duty, retiring in 1963 with the final rank of commander. As a civilian, Eric Purden worked for the Commerce Department of Office of Economic Opportunity and the Job Corps, and he also was an author. He passed away in 1989, and we thank him for his service. As for PC-1264, in early October of 1945, she would receive one of the greatest honors of her career. She was selected as one of the 47 warships for a naval review of the fleet in New York by President Harry S. Truman on Navy Day, which is October 27th. On October 24th, she sailed from Norfolk to New York. 
When they arrived in New York, Lieutenant Jack Sutherland, her new commander, arrived on board, though he'd take command officially after Navy Day. PC-1264 was the smallest of the ships in the review, and so she was at the tail end of the fleet review. President Truman still made sure to appreciate the vessel and her crew, circling the ship on board the destroyer USS Renshaw to wave to the crew. Before and after the fleet review, PC-1264 had an open house of sorts so that interested parties, particularly from the African-American community who were proud of the ship, as well as the friends and family of the crew, could tour the ship. On October 31st, Lieutenant Sutherland officially took command of PC-1264 and they sailed for New London, Connecticut on November 4th. They spent all of November and half of December in New London, assisting in the training of submarine officers, being used as a target ship to practice submarine runs on. On December 15th, USS PC-1264 returned to her home base in Tompkinsville for Christmas leave. While everyone was on the Christmas break, the ship's executive officer, Ensign Ben Shanker, received new orders, sending him to the Pacific, and so he didn't return to the ship. In his stead, Ensign Sam Gravely would assume the role of executive officer of PC-1264. Soon after this, the ship returned once more to New London for more submarine training duty, but this was interrupted when the ship received new orders. She was to head to New York for disposal. PC-1264's time in the Navy had come to an end, and on February 7, 1946, five officers and 28 enlisted men stood at its attention as PC-1264 was officially decommissioned from the Navy. After she was decommissioned, PC-1264 was transferred to the United States Maritime Commission, an independent executive agency of the U.S. federal government created by the Merchant Marine Act of 1936. They were in charge of her final disposition. As of February 2008, she was surprisingly still in existence, albeit in bad shape, at the former Don John Marine Yard in New York. It's unknown what her status is as of 2023, though I assume she'd probably still be there. There are two 1990-era photos of her afloat amid other hulks, and it shows how badly she'd rusted. The war records of subchaser PC-1264 and the destroyer escort USS Mason, which we covered earlier this month, contributed significantly to opening up roles for African Americans within the U.S. Navy after World War II. As a final honor to PC-1264, the officer in charge of her final inspection stated, quote, This ship has done a better job of decommissioning, is in better shape than any other ship, at least here in New York. As a result of her remarkable condition, she became the submarine chaser used as a showcase for possible civilian buyers. That, dear listeners, is the end to PC-1264's story. I hope you enjoyed taking a look at this important part of American history, since I personally did not know much about submarine chasers or ships patrolling near America during World War II, let alone the fact that they actually encountered German U-boats so close to America. This was an awesome research project for me, and the perfect way to wrap up February. I hope you all had a great February, and that Springs comes our way soon. Thank you for tuning into Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a 5-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And don't forget to check out our second channel, Speed Force Media. Tune in next Sunday for part one of the Halifax Explosion, starting from the perspective of SS Emo. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.